0: welcome to the religion and popular culture podcast where we talk about religion popular culture and everything in between i am vivian asimos your anthropologist of religion and i am here as always with the sociologist with the most theologist alid thomas alid how are you
1: i'm very well thank you vivian how are you
0: I'm okay. I need to um, apologize for my voice for all of our lovely listeners. I'm going to have the sexy, raspy voice for today. Uh, I feel fine. I'm not ill. Uh, But for some reason, my voice just decides to leave my body every single morning. And I don't know why. So (laughs) I'm slowly recovering um, from the morning of not being able to speak. So
1: No, I I, 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 hear you. Um, just before Christmas, <laughs> I wish
0: I had, I wish I had a better reasoning. Other, like I was actually ill, but no, yeah. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I just occasionally cannot speak when I wake up in the morning, which my husband finds hysterical, but um, <laughs> I am I'm deeply unhappy about it.
1: Yeah, just before Christmas, I had COVID. I'm not saying you've got COVID, um, but, <laughs> which, which is partly why this episode is coming out so late. Um, because we were due to record, and then I just came down with the plague. Um, so it's it's not fun to be raspy and so forth. But if you feel fine, then that's good.
0: Yeah, I feel fine. Uh, unlike you know, I know that you are not feeling fine, which Ooh, is why we did no. not record.
1: <laughs> no, it definitely did knock me for six. I have to say.
0: Well, we are not talking about ourselves today, Alan.
1: What?
0: Um... I know. I know. We're always talking about ourselves. But today, as our finale episode, we're going to do the very not um, academic school thing, as, as we did last time. Last time we tried to wrap it up like we're teaching a, a course on religion and yeah. popular culture, where we're like, remember all the things you learned uh, before you take your final. But this podcast doesn't have finals. So why we were doing that, I don't know. But... um So instead, we've been getting emails and tweet threads, Twitter threads, tweet threads. Oh, my God, I can't do anything today. Um, We've been getting Twitter threads and emails and conversations on all sorts of different platforms about our podcasts from you lovely listeners. And so I've gathered uh, about, I think, three three or so uh, things that I thought would be worthy talking about, and we can respond and and have a conversation, because Alan and I always like to say that you learn the best through dialogue, not Mm. through lectures, and unfortunately the podcast format means it's a lot of what seems like lectures, if it's just Alan and I talking into a void, so this is a really lovely way of actually having the dialogue part that um, I think we both far prefer. (laughs) Absolutely. So, (coughs) Sorry. Our first one uh, comes from Roel, who I think we have heard from before. And I'm very sorry if I am pronouncing your name incorrectly. That goes for everybody that we're going to be talking about. Um, Roel messaged us on on email quite a while ago, uh, just following our episode on Dune.
1: Mm. and
0: um had a bits to say it uh he started by also talking a little bit about the conversation around jihad which i wasn't going to talk about but i think it's worthy mentioning um i think at the time when i was talking about jihad i had said about how in um kind of western at least in the united states and in the united kingdom because you also said this that we tend to think of war as the active physical mm. violence thing and often for many Um, Muslims, jihad is a spiritual inner war, and the the difference in that understanding. And uh, Roel pointed out that actually, at least, uh, I think they said they were from the Netherlands, that uh, there it was very much more of a spiritual thing as well, even though obviously the Netherlands has their own problems with Islamophobia. Um, And uh, so, you know, things like the war on Christmas was one of the examples that they used, As obviously that is not an actual physical war. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a a metaphysical one that is going on an ideological war. And I think that was a really good point. So I wanted to kind of make sure that I pointed that out, that actually that we might have been a little bit of smearing a wider brush on things that probably should have been a bit more nuanced. But the thing that I wanted to focus on was um, we in that episode, we were also talking about. Uh, that there is a writer, a script writer on the movie Dune, the one that just came out with Timothée Chalamet. And, um, <laughs> and uh, they, uh, the, that writer had said something about how the way that Dune was written in the book um the way that it was very white savory and some of the conversation Mm -hmm. around islam uh was more okay in the 1950s when i think the quote was when islam was not a part of the world Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and obviously we both pointed out that islam was a part of the world in the 1950s um and uh roel pointed out um that John, uh, and this is where I start quoting the email, a white Anglophone who I suspect is also secular, but with a Christian culture and financially well off. What would our refer to as part of our world? Mm-hmm. I think that's not referring to a physical place or planet Earth, but to the hegemonic cultural sphere of a specific group of people mm. that through that lens, the interpretation of the world. Um, However, unlike John, I think it still isn't. Islam still isn't part of our world, though, in a different way than before. It used to be seen uh, much more like a non-issue as we barely interact with it. Nowadays, it's no longer a non-issue, despite it not being part of our world either. Uh, It's been placed in opposition to our world, which Mm. I think is really interesting. Um, a fact that we're often very painfully reminded of uh, Vivian alluded to this when she mentioned asking her white students if they had ever been the only white person in a room. Yeah. Um, I I think this is really interesting, because when you mention it being placed in opposition, that still makes it part of it.
1: Yeah, because
0: it's present when it I think the opposite of being like love, I think a lot of people think of love and hate as being opposites, but it's love and complete ignorance and not seeing it at all. Um, and I think that when we were talking about Islam as part of the world, obviously we were talking about that cultural hegemonic sphere of the, the social world. Mm. Um, and we probably didn't do a good enough job talking about that because we've i think talked a lot about the historical mm. relevancy of islam but i think the historical relevancy is important in order to understand the impact that that had on the developing social worlds that we live in we just didn't acknowledge it
1: yeah and i think as well this um the screenwriter's framing of our world it's very elitist mm. it's, it's that suggestion of if 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 he's not placing it in a um, opposition sense, there's still an element of oh we have now allowed it into our world. Or it is it is now. I I, I, I keep coming back to Tyler, what? but there's something almost <laughs> Tylorian about it. Of oh, it's evolved to the stage now where it's part of our world. And then if mm. it is in if it is in opposition, it's it's because it's different to our. Again, I'm putting massive inverted commas around our here. Um, the idea of w- white Western values in conflict uh, with Muslim values. I think that's that's certainly some of the framing there as well, or could yeah. be. I would have loved and to. I, have... I
0: think Roel kind of points out also, um, probably a little bit more um, quietly, but that uh, that question of what is our, when you say our, mm. right, there is an implicit understanding of what that involves. Yes, and, uh, and I think Royal points that out very quickly at the beginning a white Anglophone who is secular, but with a Christian culture and financially well off. That is a very specific world. And there are a lot of other aspects that that world is being influenced by, but they are ignoring those influences or seeing it as an enemy mm. of mm-hmm. rather than acknowledging the heavy presence and impact that the islamic world has had on us and
1: you know a a lot of this comes back to power as well why is Mm. this the dominant narrative well it's because of power and um it's it's reminding me of the 20th century secularization debate where it seemed like oh, well, society's getting secular because institutional Christianity's in decline, Christianity isn't as important in public life as it once was. Um, so it goes back to what Roel's saying about this white secular um, anglophone with a Christian influence that Christianity's trickling away, we're now secular. And of course it's religions like Islam that actually provide a counterbalance to the secularisation thesis. Um, we've you know, we've recently had census results in the UK where all the headlines are about religion being in decline, because Christianity is in decline in those results. But all the other so-called world religions are experiencing a boost in numbers, most notably Islam. Mm. Islam has experienced a significant boost in uh, numbers in the UK, according to the census. And I'm not going to go off on a tangent about the pros and cons of the method. The methodology. I think we of the could
0: census. probably do a bonus episode at some point. Yeah, maybe during our break, fun. we can have a breakdown of the yeah. conversation of the census.
1: Yeah, um, but but uh, but that but that, but the graph that's often shared. Um, uh, in response to the census result have, have you seen it there's a there's a graph of how the census results compares to 2011 and 2001 <laughs> and, I have not no. um, and what is noticeable there is not just no religion going up and Christianity going down but also Islam going up and that, that it's almost like a visual representation of this screenwriter's idea of Islam becoming part of our world Yeah. Um, So it definitely reminds me of that conversation around secularisation and how it's been challenged by religions like Islam, because secularisation is a very white idea. It's a very white Christian idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, when you read, because of course the secularisation thesis is a bit passe now, but when you read early sociology of religion that discusses secularization they're always talking about religion as christianity always uh, or at the very least applying christiocentric ideas to other religions so if religions aren't doing things like christianity does then well it's not religion yeah and uh, that's one of my gripes with that
0: i think in that episode i mentioned talal assad um because uh mm. he's someone that has worked a lot on islam and particularly islam as a discursive tradition which i think was the focus um on talal hasad at that point mm. but Roel might be interested in in at least reading maybe about what talal Asad has said because talal has is very difficult to read uh if you're feeling mm. up for it definitely give it a try because it's worth it it's worth the struggle but um if you he has them. a lot of he has a lot to say about that power dynamic, mm, yeah, um, power and particularly a... the way that Western cultures have viewed Islam over the years, um, and particularly from an academic point of view, um, because he was an academic, obviously. Mm. So he had a lot to say about the way that white academics talked about religion more generally and Islam specifically. Um, and I think that it both reflects a lot of what Roel is saying, as well as um, kind of provides a counterbalance to it. In the sense of you're right, like there is a very specific world that he's talking about, a very specific hegemonic social world that he's talking about. But I think what we were trying to point out is that that that's kind of like a horse with blinders on and that as much as the horse is only seeing that much, there is the whole rest of the world there. And that often the issues that we are talking about as sociologists and anthropologists is... Those things, the Mm. other parts that people aren't necessarily seeing because they have their own social blinders on. And we're trying to I I know that it's a a problem that we do a lot as teachers as we're trying to take the blinders off of students and how difficult Mm. that that can be. You know, that was why I made that comment to my students about have you ever been the only white person in a room Mm. is because they have those social blinders on. They don't realize that being the only black person in a room or the only brown person in a room can be isolating and mm-hmm. can feel a certain way mm-hmm. because they don't think about it because they have those social blinders on
1: yeah
0: um so yeah uh i think that i think that's what's really fascinating about row uh, rowell's responses <clears throat> so we're gonna move on now to shay Che. at least that's uh their twitter name uh who had a conversation about our board games um che has also had a a twitter thread previously as well that i then i think i mentioned in that episode on the board (laughs) games so Mm. i feel really bad that i keep talking about their twitter threads but they're very good twitter threads which is why i bring them up um but Che is apparently a tabletop role playing game designer, which I think is fascinating. And I would love to have a conversation with you, especially because I'm thinking about my next book being on tabletop role playing games. But I'm going to put that aside until I've actually finished writing this book and uh, <laughs> we can we can talk a different time. Um, but uh, they so they were focusing a lot more in their Twitter thread on responses to other tabletop role playing game designers uh, rather than to us. Um, as uh, the podcast, but I still think that some of what they said was really fascinating and stuff that I, I do want to talk about. Um, they pointed out that the focus on the episode was a lot on pedagogy and using board games as a way of teaching about religion, mm. uh, rather than um, on talking about board games as religion, which is, I think, a little bit more of what we might typically do on this podcast. Um, and they said there are a ton of games coming out, which have come out in the last few years, which could be more or less simplified down to questions of where it is that we encounter the sacred and special, the numinous, how we build communities. Uh, and I think there's a really compelling argument to be made that those things, those games, but also the communities we build around them, the way we gather and set aside specialist time for play, uh, the roles we take on, the rules we agree and abide by in entering that secondary world, These are things within the interests of religious studies as a field. Mm. Um, And I really I just love that lengthy conversation about what exactly is in game playing more generally board games, specifically tabletop role playing games specifically uh, that I think are really fascinating. And I did want to say that the reason why we were focusing on pedagogy was because of Paul Francois Tremlett being our guest.
1: Mm. And that
0: was his specific interest at the time in board games. So that's Mm. why we were focusing on it. Um, but you are right. There are so many really fascinating, wonderful, complicated elements about board games. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think, again, some of the stuff can be talked about play more generally, like, um, that I think Alad probably has more personalized experience of as well, of that specialized play time, that set aside world. Mm -hmm. Um, even if that world is you sitting on your couch, those blinders, you put on your own blinders to get into a different social world, um,
1: and almost the idea of a liminal space as well, mm. that um, you, you embody a different character, you become a different individual before then coming back to who you are when you either stop playing a video game or stop playing a board game. Um, I, I think is really interesting. And yeah, that idea of accepted rules that we just agree into. Mm-hmm. it's very interesting you know that those conventions that we accept that okay well this is what it's this this is what we're going to do because this is how this functions um so in, in that sense I think the f- the function of a board game is quite similar to the function of religion um of of, of specific religions rather because religions are so diverse but it needs these mm-hmm. certain characteristics to be able to thrive to be able to operate and so forth um Rodney Stark once wrote about how new religions need a certain set of categories to be able to survive, and that's almost like the rules of the game. So that for a new religion to be able to survive, it needs to be able to um, appeal to its second generation, and you know, have a financial, uh, have financial resources in place. Essentially, the the rules of the game to be able to mm. make it, that uh, I think it's very interesting.
0: Um, I wanted to bring up, there's a, a book chapter in, um, I think the book is called Playing with Religion in, Playing with Religion in Digital Games. I had to try to find it on my bookshelf behind me while, while I was thinking about it. Um, there's a book chapter kind of near the end of that one written by Rachel Wagner that talked a lot about the idea of rules and rules applying. Again, this was video games, but, um, I think there can be conversation about crossovers. Um, but talking about the rules and when you can break rules and the consequences of breaking rules, um, and how it relates to conversations around religion. So that might be something that Jay might be interested in. I don't know if you've read it. Um, but I, I think that there's, there's so many really fascinating elements about board games. And I think it's definitely a subject we can return to, I I think a couple more times, um, because there's a lot, we haven't done one on any kind of tabletop role-playing games, I don't think. Mm. I think I suggested it once and you have never played any. So.
1: Yeah, that that is a problem. Um, so I do need to actually get into that.
0: Maybe I'll DM us uh, a quick thing. I'm not very good, but it'll at least give you a...
1: <laughs> yeah, that that would be good fun. Um, but the good news is, is, if you're not a very good DM, then I won't know any different.
0: No, that's fair. So
1: it it'll be the best DM experience I've ever I've ever had. It'll also be the worst. But let's not focus. Let's be optimists. It will be the best experience of being DM'd that I have ever had. So. so
0: yeah, maybe we'll uh, we'll definitely return to it at some point, especially if I end up uh, writing writing a whole book about it. But um, we'll we'll see. But yes, I I wanted to point those out because I think um we didn't spend enough time talking about some of the other things um. But uh, yeah, board games, board games are lovely. <laughs> That's what that comes down to. Oh, all right. So we also got a lovely email from our listener, Alice. Uh, and Alice actually was really wonderful and had responses to a couple of different uh, episodes. and I'm gonna uh, make sure that Alan reads the actual email later because uh, I've copied and pasted sections of it into our notes. Um, so, uh, Alan is only reading, like, parts of this, um, but they actually, uh, linked to the episode specifically as well, which was really handy because sometimes I was like, we said what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I was able to go back. Um, but Alice, uh, there's a couple of things from Alice. First of all, Alice mentioned, uh, separately, um, that they were involved in, uh, doing, um, Slenderman stuff. Mm. um and i didn't put this in our notes but i wanted to specifically mention it because they said something about like if i would be interested in still talking about it and of course i am um and i think i might have responded to you with saying that i hope i did if not email me again so i remember to um but yes uh so you know alice also has connections to Slenderman, so obviously they are already amazing and then um so they started with a response to our um episode on world building and religion Um, And they said that over the past year or so, I've been working on a very messy draft of notes and sources regarding the process of imagining a constructed religion. Most of these sources are about basic religious literacy, as well as some frameworks for breaking down a religion into parts. Um, i.e. the three b's like belief behavior and belonging mm. most resources i find are about building a pantheon or other highly simplistic approaches to world building which might fit some projects but are not the kind of thing i'm interested in sounds like our kind of person um, <laughs> it, yeah. i've also tried to take note of some more nuanced and interesting portrayals of religion in fiction if either of you are interested, I could share the document, as messy as it is, as well as some of my own previous attempts to create constructed religions. Also, if you've heard from other people on this subject, I'd love to get in contact with others who are interested in this topic. I would love to see this. I'm really fascinated. Yes. In, we were talking about this in that episode of if people are actually making things, mm. that we were really fascinated in being able to see what they're doing. Because obviously we're only approaching things from this kind of academic religious studies background that we're not creative people <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> no no we'll just anymore.
0: critique other people's creations yeah, yes. but we're not going to do anything ourselves
1: <laughs> we're like film critics
0: <laughs> yeah but i i i am so fascinated in, in what this looks like yeah and absolutely
1: this sounds how pretty this cool comes together I
0: do want to say that as far as academics are concerned, I, I I think some academics would probably be interested in the way that we are. Of We'd be really fascinated mm. to, to read it and potentially give critiques, but I don't know if we actually will. Because, again, it's not like I know what I'm doing when it comes to actually creating anything. Yeah, um, I think
1: freedom and the freedom to do whatever you want is what this is all about, really. Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, it sounds amazing. It yeah. sounds so fascinating. Um, but I do think that maybe potentially our tabletop role playing game designer uh, mentioned previously in Twitter mm. might be someone to talk to about this. That sounds like two really creative people who are making beautiful things mm-hmm. um, that are the kind of stuff that we love to see as academics of actual real portrayals of religion. Um, I think that might be a really uh, a much better pairing, (laughs) but I would still really love to read it. I think it'd be fascinating. Um, Now, Alice also had a conversation about our live music. Uh, Well, I think I think specifically it wasn't live music as we were uh, the episode itself was about um, American Idiot. And, yeah. and I, I often go of on tangents
1: about live music, don't I? It's, but yes, it's we ended up talking moments. about live music
0: because Al, is on the podcast. And um, but I, I, I think because we, we got sidetracked with the fact that you uh, at the very end of the episode, for some reason, decided to mention. <laughs> <laughs> I've
1: <mention laughs> just remembered. The, yes.
0: The amazing like baptism moment on stage mm. that you were just like, oh, I know we've got like an hour in this podcast. It is already probably too long, but I'm going to mention this thing. Um, in my so, defense, yeah, I... <laughs> I had
1: completely forgotten It just came back to me at that moment um... So
0: I, I don't know why I mentioned this in the podcast I did not go back and listen to it uh, Because listening to my own voice is horrendous And I do it enough when I'm editing um, But I at some point I apparently mentioned the Flowbots And I think mm. this might have been because We were talking about protest music mm-hmm. And I had mentioned mm-hmm. that Flowbots was my protest music growing up um, and Al had recently listened to, uh, Fight with Tools. Yeah. Uh, which I think was a 2008 album. Uh, which was an amazing experience. That I, I think. think holds up. It is surprisingly holds up. It is surprisingly still good. There are some parts where I kind of had a little bit of an, I mean, you could do better now, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of it was still pretty good. I was really excited about it. Um, but Alice also was super excited by the flow bots. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> Which I never thought that I'd be having a conversation about the Flowbots because of starting a religion and popular culture podcast. But mm. here we are. Um and they said I was excited when Doctor C- you can just call me Vivian, you don't have to call me Dr. Simos. Um but mentioned Flowbots. Uh, because earlier this year my wife and I attended a Flowbots show together. Their music contributed a lot to my earliest political awakening in twenty eleven during the Occupy Wall Street movement. That's so cool. How amazing. That's so cool. Uh, their music has always held a special place in my heart, and I've followed their work since then. I have not gone back and listened to any new Flowbots, and you have made me want to go back and listen to them. So I want to, I'm really I want to listen to it. their
1: newer stuff now.
0: Yeah, I wonder if we should do our own little um, another one, mm. not recorded, but we'll we'll do another mm. episode, yes. Oh, yes, 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 album listen together, yes. Uh, the show earlier this year was my first time seeing them live, and it was an incredible experience that I described as religious at the time. We love to hear it. Mm-hmm. There was a pretty small crowd, and during the performance, they made a point of discussing the power of group singing in order to strengthen solidarity wow. and generally stressed a sense of belonging for everyone present, which felt really powerful. They talked about the conflict uh, brewing in the Ukraine and urged empathy for the victims, as well as urging us to remember that there are people in Russia who oppose these things and that there are always people who believe in and want to stand for what's right and to be wary of political posturing about war. Uh, Plus, we met some other queer people there, which is always nice. Always love meeting other queer people. I've also long been fascinated by their usage of religious imagery in new and unique ways. For example, I can't find the source, but I swear I saw an interview where they said their song on loss and having is about the crucifixion of Jesus and the death of Tupac Shakur. Wow. There's,
1: uh,
0: there's a lot here yeah, 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 uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. that I want to talk about.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, Please.
0: That's... um first of all love the group singing thing mm-hmm. love it how amazing yeah because I it, there is something about that right there's just something about that kind of dynamic of I mean you see it in choirs and, yes. and all this kind of stuff there was um I, as people know I watched the real housewives um and there I was recently watching real Housewives of Salt Lake City and there was a person who left mormonism and their whole storyline in the season was that they missed singing with people. That that was their thing that they missed from church.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, was
0: that that group belonging in singing? And so they started a choir again. That was supposed to be a non-religious choir, even though they only sang LDS hymns. But that's another conversation. Um, but <laughs> I I think it kind of harkens to that, right? This idea of of group belonging being mimicked within the posturing of, of mm. singing. I think that's amazing.
1: Yeah, and I think um, this is definitely what Durkheim would describe as collective effervescence. Mm. So um, I certainly in my own experience of group singing at live concerts, I, I do get that feeling of... Um, So collective effervescence refers to the emotional charge or energy or rush of emotions that goes through a group of people, a communal group of people during an event or a ritual and so forth. And I actually think the idea of um, collective effervescence kind of undoes Durkheim's distinction between sacred and profane, because surely you can experience collective effervescence in a range of scenarios. And Mm. I think what we do in this podcast is we say that, yes, uh, and everything is sacred yes. but I d- uh, but that definitely wasn't the um the framing that Durkheim took um but there is something incredibly special about that feeling, and um uh i I know Alice mentions it really briefly, but that that last bit at the end there, plus we met some other queer people, which is always nice. That's part of it as well, isn't it? That you're not just singing along with other people who are singing the same lyrics, but you are singing along with people whom you relate to, share your worldviews and so forth. That makes an enormous difference because um, there's that sense of belonging as well. I th- I yeah,
0: I was going to mention that it's it's more than just, because I think what's really amazing about it is that it's more than just creating a sense of belonging, it's, it's enacting it yes. by meeting other queer people, by having frank conversations on stage about politics and war and, um, you know, having empathy for victims. Like, these are all things mm. that are creating that sense of unity if someone strongly disagreed with that stuff they would leave and that's what you want that's yes. what you want from that is someone to who if they didn't feel that way to feel so uncomfortable that they leave because yeah. that way you are with the people i,
1: I did see on instagram a while back um, Green Day were doing a tour about five or so years ago, and Billy Joe was doing one of his rants about Trump on stage. And somebody, I think it was on Instagram, commented on his post about the show, saying, "As a Trump supporter, I felt incredibly unwelcome at your show and disappointed." And he essentially just replied saying, "Fuck off." <laughs> <laughs> Just said you're not welcome at my show. I
0: was. It's like I was watching this YouTube channel, and every year they make um, pride shirts to sell, and a lot mm. of the money goes towards different pride organizations and stuff, which is wonderful. And they said that they always lose a huge amount of subscribers whenever they do the pride uh, shirt thing hmm. but they continue to do it because it's a good way to purge the people that would be so annoyed by you making pride shirts yeah. that they would unsubscribe yeah, 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 yeah. and i think that's wonderful because that's that's what it's that thing of like i'm sure the flow bots would feel this way of they would care more about having a small group of people at their concerts that really believe the way that they do mm-hmm. and are a part of their community than to have people, a huge crowd where half of them don't care.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think some of these crowds as well can be a safe space. And I I think maybe I should go back and listen to our episode on this. But I think we discussed this at the time, the idea of a crowd being potential uh, safe space, because I think I mentioned that when I went to see Mike M last year, um, there were so many Pride and trans flags in the audience, for example, and it was a safe place to be able to wear a trans flag around your neck, for example, mm. um, which was uh, really nice. And at the at the Cardiff show, um, somebody ju- just behind us asked my wife Victoria to um, hang their Pride banner across the barrier so that the band could see it, and. Um, and and that was just that moment of oh okay this is cool we are stood amongst people who, uh you know think the same way we do share the same values we do this this is a good place to be this is a safe place to be, and um th- that that's really lovely because I have felt the opposite way in certain crowds as well, mm. um and those are the shows that I don't go back to. So I've been to see a couple of bands, for example, where I've never been in a problematic crowd, put it like, you know, I, I don't listen to skinhead music or anything like that. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've never, I, I would never say that I've been in a really problematic crowd. Um, but I have been in some crowds where I felt like I didn't belong. Or I certainly felt that, oh, okay, th- these people, I'm sure that, you know, we're singing along, we're having a good time. But if we were to sit down with one another and actually just have a chat... You'll probably find that there's some divisions between us and those are the gigs that i don't return to mm. so that makes a difference as well doesn't it so it's not yeah it, um
0: but it's amazing that you can feel that way even without having mm. that sit down conversation yeah. and i yeah, think yeah, that's yeah, yeah. what's really amazing about yeah. there is something about group gatherings where you can just kind of innately feel mm. things um, and that's something that uh, I, I think I've talked a lot about with fan conventions as well, of people kind of talking about, oh, well, these people share my values. And it's like, you've not have spoken to these people, yeah, but, hey, it's, yeah, yeah. but it is that innate knowledge. Yeah, you just feel
1: it, don't you?
0: If you're here for the same reason that I'm here, then you're a safe place. And I, and I
1: think sometimes it, it has something to do with the sensibility of... Um either the pop culture that you're so for example at a, at a con maybe like the tv show or the film that you love has a sensibility that you know would attract people like you uh or a band like you know that thing i just said about um green day and billy joe telling the trump supporter to f off you know mm. that if you go into a green day show the chances are you're going to be in a crowd of people who are your flock so to speak yeah um and so, so sometimes you just know that based on the sensibility of what pop culture you're enjoying because it just provides you with that sort of worldview, you know?
0: Yeah. I'm not wording think... it very
1: well. <laughs> and I think part of the I reason I'm that... not wording it very well is because sometimes it is something that you just feel.
0: It is. It is that innate... I think... Um. I I don't know if it's exactly this, but there's uh, a thing that I think Paulson... Gilly Paulson? Jilly Paulsy? Uh, Paulson, um, stressed, he's an anthropologist. Uh, it's in an article. I can always link it if someone's interested, but, um, it's called enskillment, which is this process of learning that isn't the way that you think of as learning. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: it's, it's not just that someone sits down and says, well, here's how you do this, or you read that in a book or something like that. It's that innate learned bodily, in, you know, kind of instinctual thing that you learn only by doing, only by being with the other people who also know those things. And that by being there and doing those things over time, you grow that skill of being able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's something in there. And I think it's a lot of things that queer people learn. Um, very quickly that I think sometimes non-queer people take longer to learn but they can is is knowing that that Mm. innate sense of knowing I think happens a lot faster for certain people Mm. who are on the social boundaries Mm. rather and or outskirts completely Mm. um, rather than people who are trying to support those who are on the outskirts have to start to being around them to learn how to do that as well. Um, but yeah anyway I'm sorry that we've been maybe I'm sorry maybe I'm not sorry that we've been linking a lot of academic stuff as we we respond to this but I'm hoping that someone finds it interesting. Well, I, I,
1: I think sometimes it can be reassuring to know that academic things do matter.
0: Yeah someone has thought of this.
1: Yeah that uh, a, that we aren't just shouting into the void and so on that actually we we can enrich conversations yeah. with because uh, um, you I, know i yeah. I'm I, I'm to get on my high horse a little bit, sometimes I'm really sceptical of this idea of where, um, oh, social change will always happen in universities and, and so forth. I think, will it, though? Will it? I, I, yes I don't and know no. If,
0: <laughs> I will be honest. I don't know how much that's true. I, I don't think that if it is, that it's true because of academic literature. Hmm. I think it's true because of what we were just talking about, right? Yeah, and
1: I think some of the most right-on people I've ever met are students. Mm. Um, so, so Some of my students are absolutely amazing and are so politically and socially engaged and doing all these amazing things and, um, you know, organising these rallies and so forth in the middle of the city, whereas, you know, I, I'm, I'm just... Practic borderline literally sat in my ivory tower you know i'm just sat in my i'm just sat in my office just typing away and and then you think okay so who are the really yeah engaged people here
0: i mean i think it's a combination of the fact that we do try to take those blinders off but i Mm. think it's also because during that process for a lot of them they're around other people like them for the first time
1: Mm. Mm. or they're around
0: people not like them for the first time yes and that can also be just as groundbreaking as being around people like yeah. you for the first time. And that can really change the way that you think and the way that you experience the world. Mm. And that's where a lot of that social change happens. Mm. Um, I think much more than academic literature, although I think academic literature can help. But yes, of course. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But it, it isn't quite as I don't think it's quite as clear cut as sometimes it's made out to be that, mm. oh, you know, a group of professors will decide that this is the best way to move forward and society will just follow. Yeah, um, I, 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 don't think that's uh, um. The right no, line. the
0: flowbots will we will
1: follow the Flowbots f- Follow the flowbots. I mean, well, you know, <laughs> public impact is much greater on that front, isn't it? But uh, you know, I see it with um, um, where I'm working right now, and and I'm and I'm not just saying this to butter up my employers, but I, I'm very. <laughs> if you are, they're not listening. Know, it's if, okay. Yeah, um but um, but our campus is so clearly a safe space for queer students and there are so many visibly queer students on campus that it's really lovely and um as you were saying for so many students this is the first time that they meet people that they connect with and Mm -hmm. people they relate to and so forth and that's so important and I think that student experience is so important so so that's good well
0: I Am um, feeling encouraged to write my next book on tabletop role playing games, as well as on the Flowbots. So, are you also feeling um... <laughs>
1: encouraged to finish your current book? Well, no, I don't, <laughs> but I, can... <laughs> I. I I oh, I completely rela- I completely relate to you. I've got so many things now that I'm interested in that are floating my boat a little bit more than what i actually need to finish right now
0: i know but the thing is is that once i like really sit down and start doing stuff i get excited again i was just going through my interviews Hmm. um and re-annotating them and and re kind of filing things away to make it easier to write the chapters because i'm not writing them um and just reading some of the conversations i was having and i was like oh my god this is so fascinating and i clearly didn't think it was fascinating at the time that i was having the conversation because just reading the transcript and i'm like why didn't i ask them more about this (laughs) Mm -hmm. so you know i definitely can get reinvigorated but i think that's the thing right is that there's just so much out there in in pop culture and its connections to religion and anthropology and everything that i think there's just
1: yeah, absolutely and it says so much about the world we live in. I remember um this is going to sound like a really random tangent but there is a there is a point to this. Um <laughs> you know Richard Osman, the guy from Pointless? Yes. Um so for um Any of our overseas listeners, Pointless... uh, Pointless? Yeah, it is Pointless, isn't it? That is the name of the show. It is, yeah. Uh, Pointless is a BBC quiz show that airs daily, and um, there is a person on the show who's almost like their fact-checker, the person who knows all the answers. He's a very knowledgeable man, and um, he said on Twitter a while back that sociology and media studies have been you know, long derided as Mickey Mouse subjects, but they're actually the two subjects that, and I, you know, I'd throw anthropology in there as well. Don't worry. I'm sure. Um, thanks. um <laughs> uh, they are the two subjects that actually tell us the most about the world we live in right now. Mm. And, are the, and and that really did strike a chord to me. And that's, that's why i enjoy talking about religion and popular culture because so many people may see the title of our podcast series and think oh they're going to talk about how luke skywalker is like jesus and um, i mean
0: maybe a different day but yes (laughs) and
1: and and so on uh and, and i'm not saying that's not interesting and so on it is but there's so much the the avenues you can go down In Mm. discussing religion and popular culture, how you do end up talking about, uh, you know, Trump's politics, for example, or you talk about how people play tabletop games and so on. It, It says so much about the world that we live in. And of course, yeah, I would add anthropology to that. But here's my controversial hot take, you know. Qual sociology and anthropology are
0: pretty much the same thing. We've had this conversation before.
1: <laughs> They're not that different, are they? they you know that, That's my hot take. One day I'll share it on Twitter um, or Mastodon or wherever whatever the cool place is now. And I have no doubt I will get absolutely incinerated by loyalists to their discipline. But let's be real here. <laughs> I, I, I find that I'm using so many anthropologists in my work right now. Because, That's because we're the best. Because it just suits what I want to do.
0: <laughs> Maybe you're just really an anthropologist is what's happening rather than...
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny you should say that. Somebody um, earlier this week, um, I, th- I think they just saw the abstract for my book online. And I was having a chat to them and they assumed I was an anthropologist. Mm. Based on the way that I described my work. So yeah, I think those boundaries are quite blurred.
0: Quick thing that's going to rope back to our very first conversation with Raul. Um, one of the when I was first learning anthropology and sociology and stuff, and I'm wondering if this is the same for you. Who did you learn was the founder of fieldwork as a method?
1: Malinowski
0: malinowski Bronislaw malinowski mm-hmm. the very first anthropologist and sociologist as well as many many other things um who did field work was an islamic scholar
1: right okay
0: but we learn malinowski this yeah. is this is the social blinders yeah, yeah, the social yeah, yeah, yeah. impacts the way that me and Ali do research is thanks to an islamic scholar not thanks to Bronislaw malinowski but we don't know that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and there's a similar thing in um, sociology with the founding fathers of sociology, mm. which is a horrible term anyway. Um, but when you look, when you look at any—well, I say any—when you look at general academic texts on the founding fathers of sociology, it's Marx, Weber, Durkheim, and 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 um, Simmel, and so forth. Um, rarely does one mention Du Bois mm. who was a person of colour Yep. and unlike those other scholars that I've just mentioned Du Bois actually went out of his office and spoke to the people he was studying he actually did do field work and yeah he was a hugely influential early scholar of um, uh, early sociologists of religion in fact I think he was the first African American to ever be awarded a PhD and um, only more recent texts on the sociology of religion for example obviously I read sociology of religion texts mention Du Bois, and I did see a really lovely twitter thread about him the other day about how his work is actually very relevant for us now in the 21st century particularly regarding um black rights and so forth Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's it's always it's always the big white dudes well, yes. And rarely any mention of Du Bois, but yeah, Du Bois exists.
0: <laughs> so listen to these two white people tell you.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I know that's part of the problem, isn't it? Um, but we're trying.
0: We're trying. We're trying. Um, well, I don't know if that's a depressing note or a great note to end our season on. Let, let,
1: let's, fr- let's frame it as a positive note to end on in that there's work to do and we can do it.
0: We will we will do our best which is yeah. the best you can do. Yeah. It is the, yeah that,
1: that's that, that's quite right.
0: Um, so we will see you in a couple of months time mm. for the next season. But in the meantime, I don't know, be good to each other. Yep. Read stuff.
1: Yep, be excellent to each group other. Group sing? Yes, absolutely. Do you on group singing, uh, Vivian, do you have any live music plans for this year? No. <laughs> I have got
0: if Orville pack was coming... coming up this year
1: which oh yeah seven and and you know i'm i'm quite pleased with that and you know me i'm such a live music person that covid was really difficult on that front mm. um so now i'm just consuming all the, all the live music that i can so yeah i've got seven things coming up
0: Choo-choo. If Orville Peck was coming to the UK, well, we've would have said that. Yeah, we've it.
1: said that we would go, wouldn't we?
0: I would buy you a ticket and we would go.
1: But, yeah, we would um, definitely go and see that. Be unfortunately,
0: he is not. But as soon as he is...
1: I... Yeah, let's keep tabs. And then we'll come and discuss it on the show.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thanks everyone for listening.
1: Thanks, folks, and take care.
0: Bye! Bye.